Let me introduce myself. My name is Adrian Holloway. I'm from the Beacon Church in Camberley. I'm married to Julia, and we have four daughters. They're all here uh, this week. One's 22, another is 21, and then one is 15, and one's 13. And I'm really excited to welcome you to the Big Issues seminar stream. In this seminar, we're going to look at the biggest issues that we face. And this morning, we start with perhaps the biggest issue of all, the biggest issue that mankind, humanity, has ever faced. The question, does God exist? Is there actually any purpose to life or not? So the stakes could hardly be higher. So thank you for coming to the Big Issues seminar stream. What's going to happen this morning is we're going to watch four videos. They're all about five minutes long, so at least 20 minutes of the seminar we'll be watching the screens, watching videos. There'll be a little bit of talking by me in between the videos, and then the last 20 minutes will be questions. I'll invite you guys to come up to this red microphone here that I'm pointing to and also to this mic here. Ask any question you want, and then I promise we will finish bang on time at half past 12. Okay, let's get underway with this huge question, does God exist? Maybe your parents believe in God. Maybe your grandparents also believe in God. Perhaps you believe in God, but you're not really sure why. Now let's just think about a friend of yours at school or at college, a friend who does not believe in God. Are there any good reasons why your friend should believe in God? In the next few minutes, I'd like to suggest five good reasons to think that God exists. And here is the first. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy, and that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe. 
So it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Okay, well, guys, if you've joined us since the start of the seminar, let me explain. We're going through five reasons to think that God exists. And the first of those is all to do with the evidence from the beginning of the universe. We know a lot more about how the universe began now than we did a hundred years ago. Let's pick out just one thread from the video we just watched. We heard that time, space, matter, and energy all began to exist at the moment when the universe began to exist, the so-called Big Bang. So the universe has a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and enormously powerful first cause. And another name for a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and enormously powerful first cause of the universe is God. And if the atheist says, no way, you can't just say God is eternal, God's always been there. Please remember, folks, this is not special pleading on behalf of God, because this is exactly what atheists used to say about the universe. 100 years ago, atheists used to say that the universe is eternal, that the universe is just there. And atheists only stopped saying that when they were forced to stop, and they were forced to stop when the evidence showed that the universe is not eternal. We now know that the universe has not always been there. Okay, let's watch the screens again. We're going to look at a second reason to think that God exists. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. 
If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these and many other numbers have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Okay, well, 
we're now looking at our second reason to think that God exists, and it's all to do with the extraordinary fine-tuning of the universe. And let's pick up on just one example that we saw in our video to do with the value of gravity, the force strength of gravity. Let's imagine for a moment, by way of illustration, that this tape measure was enormously long, so long that it actually stretched from one side of the observable universe, all the way over here, right over to the other side of the observable universe. So over here, we would have the uh, weakest possible value that gravity could possibly have had. And over here, on the other side of the universe, we have the strongest value that gravity could possibly have had. Now let's imagine that gravity on Earth is currently set here. Now let's imagine that I want to increase the strength of gravity on Earth, but only by a tiny amount. I only want to increase it by two and a half centimeters from here to here, a tiny amount on the vast scale. Folks, scientists have discovered that this tiny increase from here to here would actually increase the strength of gravity on Earth a billion-fold, which would mean that there would never have been any life on planet Earth. In fact, this tiny increase from here to here would have meant that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. This tiny increase from here to here would have meant that planet Earth would never have been as big as this stage. Now, that's just the fine-tuning of gravity. In order for us to be here talking about it, there are many other fine-tuned constants and quantities, all of which have to be just so in order for us to be alive. Any messing with any of the numbers, if you touch any of those dials, there would either be no universe or there would be no us. Folks, my story is that I reached a point where I realized that in any other area of my life, I would never accept sheer luck or chance as the best explanation for the facts that are in front of us. It seems that the universe was designed deliberately from the outset in such a way as to make advanced organic life on the surface of our planet possible. Okay, so far we've seen two arguments for the existence of God. The first one was the Kalam cosmological argument. That's all to do with evidence from the beginning of the universe. The second one is the fine-tuning argument for design in the universe. Remember, we will have time. We'll have about 20 minutes for questions at the end if you want to come forward and ask any question. Now, guys, we're going to move on to our third argument for the existence of God. And this third one cuts a lot closer to home because this one is about how you and I behave. It's about the decisions that you and I make every day. It's all to do with right and wrong. This third argument is called the moral argument. It's such a big and powerful argument that we're going to take a bit of a run-up to it. So we're just going to watch an introductory video before we get right into the moral argument. Have a look at the screens. You know, nobody asked me if I wanted to exist. Yeah, one day, boom, there you are. And you think to yourself, why am I here? Well, what do you think? Is there a reason we're here? Do our lives have any real significance? Well, that depends. On what? On whether or not God exists. Wait, hold on. Are you saying that my life has no significance because I don't believe in God? No, not at all. I'm saying that if God doesn't exist, it doesn't matter what you believe. Our lives would have no objective meaning, value or purpose. Many atheists themselves recognize this. If atheism is true, life is absurd. Okay, and why do they think that? To begin with, if God does not exist, then the physical universe is all there is. Which means you and I are just accidental byproducts of nature. Right, so? 
That means we were not intentionally designed. So there's no purpose for us being here. Wow. It gets worse. If God does not exist, there is no absolute standard of moral value. You've heard of Richard Dawkins, the atheist. He points out that in a materialistic universe, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. So, you're saying atheists can't be good people? No, I'm not saying that. Many atheists live good lives. What I'm saying is, atheism fails to provide an objective basis for saying any particular action is good or evil. Oh, come on. After millions of years of socio-biological evolution, humans have developed a sense of morality. We all know it's good to feed a hungry child and bad to torture someone for fun. Of course we do. But that's precisely what atheism cannot explain. If there's no God, then what we consider right or wrong is nothing more than an accident of evolution or a human social convention. So what? I'm good with that. Really? Evolution implies survival of the fittest, not morality. And social convention means that racism, intolerance and cruelty are not really wrong. They just happen to be unpopular. Okay, so atheists need to come up with some objective standard for rights and wrongs. How about this? If an action leads to human flourishing, then we can say it's objectively good. And if it doesn't, it's objectively evil. But why think that human flourishing is good? Aren't you being species-centric? Why not refer instead to the flourishing of rats or cabbages? Well, uh... and who gets to decide what contributes to human flourishing? Hitler was convinced killing millions of Jews would promote human flourishing and Margaret Sanger thought forcing poor people to be sterilized would lead to human flourishing as Guy Nielsen points out pure practical reason will not take you to morality so if atheism is true there is no legitimate basis for saying that behaving one way is worse than behaving any other way so it really doesn't matter how you live your life your day-to-day choices are meaningless that's depressing so if there's no god what happens when you die well nothing you simply cease to exist right so one person lives a kind generous thoughtful life another lives a horrible violent selfish life it doesn't matter in both cases the outcome is the same nothingness So how can their life choices have any objective meaning? Well, it's certainly meaningful if I discover a cure for cancer or save a child's life. I agree completely. But atheism can't explain why. Scientists predict that eventually the whole universe and mankind with it will die out. So everything comes to nothing. That's why atheist Bertrand Russell says we must build our lives on the firm foundation of despair. No thanks. I'd rather live a happy life. You're not alone. Every atheist has to choose between being happy or being consistent. You can tell the whole world you're an atheist, but you can't really live like one. Okay, so you're a Christian. If your god did exist, how would that change anything? If Christianity is true, then each one of us is here for a reason. and life does not end at the grave and god he's the absolute standard of goodness he knows you he loves you and he intentionally created you so your life ultimately does have objective meaning value and purpose that means you can live a life that's both happy and consistent while well, that doesn't prove christianity's true agreed I'm simply pointing out that for Christians living a life that is both happy and consistent is possible for atheists it's not So what are you going to choose Great okay well like I said a moment ago we're building up to our third reason to think that god exists the moral argument and that was just an introductory video but we saw that everybody does have a world view not everyone however has examined 
and scrutinize their own worldview. Let's imagine that I have a choice. Imagine I can choose between two worldviews. On worldview A, which is atheism, I know in my heart that life has no meaning, no design, and no purpose, that life is just a meaningless accident. But I choose to kid myself by pretending that life has a purpose. It's all part of my attempt and my desire to be happy. Alternatively, I can choose worldview B, Christianity. Here, I don't have to contradict my beliefs to be happy. I don't have to kid myself or deny what I really believe. I do not have to pretend anything. I don't have to invent a purpose for my life that I know deep down is fake. So now let's watch and see how we can put together a powerful moral argument for the existence of God. Can you be good without God? Let's find out. Absolutely astounding. There you have it. Undeniable proof that you can be good without believing in God. But wait, the question isn't, can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? See, here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we are left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subjective, not objective. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So, in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed his moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in his command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the objective goodness of generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed, abuse, and discrimination. This raises a problem. Is something good just because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? The answer is neither one. Rather, God wills something because He is good. God is the standard of moral values, just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high-fidelity recording. Without your love. The more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature, highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is, good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real, oh. 
our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real. Every time you say, Hey, that's not fair, that's wrong, that's an injustice, you affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals. We're well aware that child abuse, racial discrimination, and terrorism are wrong for everybody, always. Is this just a personal preference or opinion? No. The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. What all this amounts to then is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God. Okay, folks, so far in our seminar today, we have looked at three arguments to think that God exists. The first was the Kalam cosmological argument, all to do with the beginning of the universe. The second was to do with the extraordinary fine tuning of the universe. And the third one we just heard is the so called moral argument. How about the fourth reason on the screen? It's all to do with the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Imagine that somebody comes up to you at a bus stop and says, I am God. You wouldn't take their claim seriously. What they just said would not make you think that God exists. Now let's imagine that the same person comes up to you the following day at the same bus stop and says, I am God. And when they kill me, I will show you that I'm God three days later by rising from the dead. You still wouldn't take their claim to be God seriously. But what if that person is killed and then they do come back from the dead three days later? Well, that person's physical resurrection from the dead would add credibility to their claim. The reason Jesus' resurrection is such a strong argument for the existence of God is because Jesus was not just some random bloke at the bus stop. Jesus fulfilled 322 Old Testament prophecies or predictions, all of which were written at least 400 years before he was born. These predictions were about a special person, so called Messiah, who the Old Testament part of the Bible predicted would come. Some of these prophecies are very specific. Many of them are events that Jesus would have had no control over. And yet, Jesus fulfilled all 322 of these prophecies. So, Jesus was not a deluded man ranting at the bus stop. Jesus already looked like the long awaited Jewish Messiah. But did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, here are three minimal facts, facts which are agreed upon by the vast majority of historians who study this question. The first one is that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. The second is that three days afterwards, his tomb, where he'd been buried, was empty. And the third minimal fact is that Jesus' disciples really did believe that he rose and that he. Appeared to them. Well, the first of these is straightforward because we have evidence from outside the Bible for the crucifixion of Jesus. The main thing that we know about Jesus of Nazareth is that he died on the cross. On the second point, even non Christian historians will tell you that three days after Jesus died, his tomb. Was empty. And they say that because they know that Jesus' opponents, the Jews, 
and the Romans, if they had had the dead body of Jesus, they would have produced it. Picture the scene. There are the first Christians touring Jerusalem, punching the air, saying, Hallelujah! Christ is risen. Jesus is alive. Now, if Jesus' opponents, the Jews and the Romans, had had Jesus' dead body, they would have put it on a cart and wheeled Jesus' dead body behind the celebrating Christians and said, No, no, he's not alive. He's dead. Look, come and see for yourselves. Jesus was, after all, a celebrity. So Jesus' opponents, the Jews and the Romans, would have produced Jesus' dead body if they'd had it. The reason they didn't produce it was because they themselves could see that Jesus' tomb was empty. The third minimal fact agreed by historians is that Jesus' disciples really did believe that he rose and that he appeared to them. Remember, these disciples did actually get killed for saying that Jesus had risen and they'd had dinner with him, that they'd eaten fish with him, that they'd touched him and talked to him and spent time with him. These people had nothing to gain by saying that they'd interacted with the resurrected Jesus. They had everything to lose by saying that they'd met with the risen Jesus. The only explanatory theory that can accommodate all three of these facts is the explanation that Jesus did rise from the dead just as he said he would. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then we do have good reason to think that God exists. Okay, the fifth and final reason on our list that we're going to mention in this seminar, the fifth and final reason to think that God exists is personal experience. And you might be surprised to see that personal experience has made it into this top five reasons list because surely somebody else's experience is easily dismissed. No, exactly the opposite is the case. It's very hard to prove a negative. If you claim to have experienced God... It's really hard for anyone to show that you haven't. I mean, think of the burden that the atheist has to shift. Millions, in fact, billions of people claim to have had a personal experience of God. The atheist has to show that they are all deluded. If just one person really has experienced God, then we have evidence that God exists. So, folks, it's time for questions. I want to encourage you to come and queue up at these two microphones and ask any question that you might have. But I hope that in the first 37 minutes of our seminar, we have seen that there are at least five good reasons to think that God exists. Thank you very much. Okay, if you guys would like to queue up, ask any question that you might like to ask, I'll just take questions one to the other. Thank you very much. And then I promise you at half past 12, we will finish the seminar and we'll be all done. Okay. Uh, young man to my right in the hat. Do you want to go first? Nice and loud. Hello. <coughs> um, I suppose my problem is that um, you can sort of... Christians view the world in a certain way. Like we see... Uh, we look at the world around us and we see meaning and purpose and order. And, and so it's kind of easy for us to say... It must be designed, but uh, I suppose, and that is how that is the instinctive way to view the world. But uh, some consistent atheists, like uh, I think, I suppose Nietzsche might fall into this category, um, would look at the same world and see only chaos and randomness. And so it's a lot harder to sort of point out the things that. It, sorry, if the. Um, It's, hard, it's much harder to point out the things that are obvious to us. <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. No, I do know what you mean. It's a very good question. In this seminar, if you've sat here for the last half an hour or so, it does appear to be clear that there's evidence for design in the universe. However, before I was a Christian, as I looked at life, it did appear to be chaotic. 
it seemed to me that a lot of very bad things happened to people who I thought were really quite good, whereas there, there seemed to be injustice in the world. The, the, the evidence for the design of the universe was unknown to me. I also want to say that there's also a historical factor here, that if we'd been doing this seminar 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, certainly the second point about the fine-tuning of the universe... 50 years ago, we would not have been able to make such a strong case for the existence of God from the fine-tuning because we didn't know as much as we do now about the fine-tuning. So, yes, it's true that the evidence for design perhaps isn't overwhelming as we go through life, but as we look into these questions, I think we do find good evidence for it. How about you over here? Do you want to ask a question? Yeah. Uh, there is no proof of the multiverse, as we have recently found out. So what is your proof of God, and how is it different from any other religion's answer of why God exists? Okay, well, that's a very good question, very well expressed. Um, first of all, I would say that I don't claim proof, because the way that most people use the word proof is most people, I find, use the word proof for a repeatable experience or a repeatable experiment. So, for example, let's take the very first point that we looked at, which was to do with the origin of the universe. If you look at a, a scientific experiment or a sum, let's say, take the mathematical sum 2 plus 2 equals 5, that's something you can do time and time again. A chemical experiment is something you could repeat in a chemistry lab every day. You could go back in a month's time, repeat it again, repeat it again in two months' time. However, when we're looking at a historical event, we're talking about something that only happened once. Take, for example... Hercule Poirot. He's trying to solve a mystery or a murder. What he can't say is, okay, let's just do the murder all over again, and we'll actually watch and see who committed the murder. He can't do that. So we're talking about an event that happened once. So I don't claim proof because I, don't, I think most people would use the word proof in that way. However, what I think we can do is we can look for the inference to the best explanation. Let's imagine that all of you guys sitting on the grass here all were drafted for jury service. You get this letter in the post, you think, oh my goodness, for two or three weeks of my life I'm going to be sitting in a courtroom, sitting on some benches with 11 strangers. But what you'd be asked to do by the judge is to come up with the, uh, 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 something that's beyond reasonable doubt, a verdict that perhaps you couldn't say that you can prove to be true, but there's so much evidence, it almost gets to the decision, am I really going to get on an aeroplane? Now, you don't actually know that that aeroplane will land safely at its destination, but you've got so much evidence, so much reason to think that it will, that you, you actually do get on that plane, even though you have less than 100% certainty that it will arrive. And so that's the way I look at these five arguments. The cumulative case, when you add together the five takes me to a point where I'm beyond reasonable doubt. But I don't claim proof. Great question. How about you? Yeah, what do you want to ask? Uh, hi, um, I was just going to ask, um, what's your advice on stubbornness from atheists, and how do we, as Christians, approach it in a loving way and not a frustrated way? Oh, well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, funnily enough, in terms of actually winning people to Jesus Christ the strength of the arguments turns out to be less important than the way you express them, as I think your question's hinting at. People uh, don't really care how much you know till they know how much you care. Let's imagine I had an atheist friend, and I really wanted to persuade them that Christianity was true and that God exists. Probably me knocking on their door and offering to help them in some practical way would probably do more to win them round to considering the evidence for God than me just knocking on their door and saying, have you ever considered the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God? Uh, which of these premises do you challenge? That the universe, for example, I don't think that would work. So, yeah, the fact is that we have to remember that we are seeking to present Christianity in a cultural climate where there's not a lot of this. I mean, you can hear this from the main stage in a seminar at New Day. You won't hear much of this on popular media on, on, in terms of our culture. There aren't strong voices coming through. Uh, we don't have a strong uh, voice in culture presenting the truth claims of Christianity. So many people hearing these arguments have literally never heard them before, particularly the second one. 
the evidence for the fine-tuning, there will be many people, particularly my age, who are completely unaware of the overwhelming evidence. I would say every 10 years from the 1990s onwards, the evidence for fine-tuning was doubling every decade. So now we have vast, vast numbers of fine-tuned quantities and uh, constants. So yeah, I would encourage you, I think, consistent friendship, caring before you share is the key. Sticking with that person, even if they appear to be completely indifferent to anything that you've said, um, and, and, and play the long game. Stick with them for a long time, because for many of us, it took a very long time to change your worldview. I mean, think what's at stake. You're You've been brought up to believe that life is a meaningless accident. Now you're going to say that life has a purpose and that everybody will stand before a judge on judgment day and go to either heaven or hell. This is an enormous change, and not everybody is going to go from one to the other in five minutes. So, uh, great question. Thank you very much. Yeah, go for it. If um, God famously exists and is this wonderful, brilliant, um, loving creator... Why does he allow acts of suffering? A couple of examples I can think of are 9-11, the Holocaust. He could have stopped those with one word. Why did he allow it? Well, this is an excellent question, and I feel I'd almost be cheating you by giving you a quick answer, but I'll try and give you a brief answer. But I'm sure you can imagine, really, we need a whole seminar. I think that the briefest answer I can give is this. First of all, the emotional impact of suffering... I'm not sure there's anything I can say about the emotional impact. If we're talking about the philosophical question, how could it be that there's a good God who creates a universe where there's suffering? I can speak to that. And I would say on the, on the philosophical question, how could there be a good God who creates a universe in which there's suffering, would be all to do with the nature of this creator. So if there is a God, what sort of God is he? If he's a God who's happy just to have robots who perform his will, so, for example, everybody on this campsite has no freedom of choice. They're just robots who are programmed to do A, B, or C, or D. If that kind of God exists, then there wouldn't be suffering in the world, but there'd also be no love. You'd never get two people choosing to love each other because they're just robots. They've been programmed. The whole thrill of falling in love is that you get to choose. And if God wants there to be love in the world, then there must be some degree of freedom of choice. In Christianity, we have this unusual thing where God is one, one God in three persons who all love each other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So God is a relational being who wants there to be love. And so that's why he creates a world in which there's freedom of choice. Now, the moment you allow freedom of choice, you've got the possibility, the danger, that therefore people will choose to go their own way and not God's way, and that there'll be implications in human relationships that will break down and suffering in the world. And therefore, God chooses to create this world, presumably because from his point of view, he wants there to be real love in the world. Now, in terms of the emotional impact, which is, I think, the hardest question for Christians to respond to, the only thing I could say briefly would be the unique thing in Christianity is that when God the Father sees how bad suffering is in the world, rather than remaining in heaven with his arms folded, looking down and keeping removed, in Christianity, God dives into human suffering and chooses to suffer. So this is unique in Christianity. A suffering God, a crucified God, that somehow... God suffered, that as Jesus died on the cross, he was entering into our suffering. So we don't actually have a God who doesn't care about human suffering. He cares enough to come down and become one of us and to die instead of us, taking away the barrier of sin so that we can be with him forever. So I would encourage you, that is a brief answer and it deserves a longer answer and we'll look at other seminars or if you want to stick around when the seminar ends at half past 12 I'll come down off the stage and I'll answer questions and I can direct you to some better resources yes go for it the video about the moral argument for God said that God sets out what is good but also God is good how does that work because surely he could just say I am good because that's what I've set good to be yes uh, 
Okay, that, this is a really good uh, technical question. It's about a philosophical problem called the Euthyphro dilemma. Uh, do, is something good because God wills it to be good or not? And the answer given in the video is that something is good because God is good. I would encourage you on this question to read William Lane Craig's book, Reasonable Faith, the most recent edition, where there is a proper philosophical examination of the Euthyphro dilemma which will address that question far better than I can. Uh, but it's a great question. Yes, go for it. Yeah, quick one. How would you deal with like, the story of creation in Genesis and then things like the Big Bang, Redshift, all that stuff? Can they, are they, can they be together or are they mutually exclusive? This is a great question, and uh, there is no, in my opinion, there is no conflict between the Big Bang and the discovery you mentioned, the Redshift. Uh, let me just explain what that is. Um, when Edwin Hubble was looking through his telescope in California at the universe 100 years ago, he saw something which astronomers called the redshift. This was the proof that objects in the distance weren't where they should have been, that, they, uh, that, that basically uh, that they, they were being, they'd been bent as the human eye sees and it's all part of the evidence for the fact that the universe is expanding, that the universe is not just locked in a static, steady state, that the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's why it was such a big deal. And that's why, one of the reasons why you've heard of Edwin Hubble and the Hubble telescope and so on. That was a spectacular confirmation of Genesis 1 verse 1. It was a spectacular confirmation that the universe had a beginning. Because if this thing is expanding and Edwin Hubble proved that it is, it must in the past have been much smaller than it is now, and it must, in fact, at one time have had a beginning. Then in the 1960s, further confirmation, because two uh, scientists were able to hear background radiation from the beginning moments. That's a mind-boggling idea. All these many years ago, when the universe began to exist, there was this huge noise. They were able to hear it through their space telescope, that was a further confirmation. Then throughout the 1960s, there were additional confirmations that the universe began to exist. Where there is, for some, potential conflict between science and God is with those who hold that the universe is young. Those who hold that the universe is a recent creation, that planet Earth is a recent creation. However, if you take the old Earth view and you think that the universe is old, then there is, in my opinion, no apparent conflict between the book of Genesis and the discoveries of modern science. Yes, young man. Uh, hello, I was just wondering, um, how do we know that it's like it's God behind all this? Because maybe atheists could argue that they could just invent somebody and that we invented like God that um, started the universe and uh, started everything. Yeah, um, it's an important question. Where we can get to are some of the qualities of this first cause we can be clear that whatever the cause of our universe is, this cause is outside of time. It must be timeless. It's something that existed before space, so it's spaceless. It was the cause of all matter, so it must be immaterial. And it was the beginning or the source of all the energy, so it must be enormously powerful. Now, you could say, or I could say, that this timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and enormously first cause of the universe was Fred. We could use the word Fred for the first cause. Generally speaking, in the English language, we've used the word God. I think we can then actually go beyond that and show reasons to think that this creator is personal, and that's where the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes in. And even the fifth point about personal experience. But yeah, I think we can get to the fact that there's a creator and the fact that this creator is eternal, but I think that we need more to show that it's anything to do with Jesus Christ. We need the resurrection of Christ to do that. Great question. Yes, over here, young man. It doesn't make sense how... Well, I understand how God's been there forever, but I still can't grasp... I still can't grasp how he's been there infinitely and that he's, just, he's been there before anything started. So how would you state... That aren't a state the answer in that in a way that we can all grasp it. Well, that's, that's a great uh, question, and I like you find it really hard to believe. Um, there are other things that I also struggle to get my head around. I struggle to get my head around, uh, for example, the fact that 
our universe is as vast as it is and that it's expanding. I find that hard to fathom. There are quite a few things about human experience which are hard to get your head around. It's hard to understand how it is that my breathing oxygen is all to do with those trees over there and the cycle of how that works. It's hard to understand about the fine-tuning of the universe that means that I stay on the surface of this planet rather than flying off. So there's lots of things that are hard to understand. I think the key thing is to go with what we know. We know that the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe can't have created itself. So if the universe began to exist, it must have a cause outside of itself, a pre-existent first cause. Well, that's a fairly small step to get from a pre-existent first cause to an eternal God. That's how I'd rationalize it. Yeah, let's have, we may have time for one or two more. We're going to close in four minutes. Yeah, go for it. Hi. Hi. Um, I was wondering about the theory of evolution, the idea of like, how God is supposed to be protecting the meek and the weak, whereas survival of the fittest is how we evolved to where we are now. So if that's true, it doesn't really, it kind of contradicts the God that we learn in the Bible of love. Yeah, well, uh, th this is a great question about evolution. And yes, uh, I think probably all of us have watched nature documentaries where you get predators tearing other animals to pieces. And you're absolutely right. Nature read in tooth and claw, the survival of the fittest, is a fierce and scary uh, reality in nature. Um, some Christians think that God has used this process as a way whereby we end up here. Others think, no, uh, human beings, for example, were the special creation of God. There are probably people on this campsite that would hold to both of those views. Um, I personally think that human beings are the special creation of God, that they aren't part of a, uh, an ongoing process that you can take all the way back to the first human life. So I, I personally don't think that there was a single-celled organism, an amoeba, that evolved over millions of years that resulted in anatomically modern humans. But I know that there are many Christians who do think that. So I personally think of humans as a special creation of God and that uh, God uh, sees human beings differently to animals. So yes, what's happening in the animal world may be fierce and uh, nature red in tooth and claw might seem quite scary, However, it's all part of a system that enables human beings, God's special creation, to, fu to function on our planet. Let's have one last question from you over here on my left, and then I'm just going to say 60 seconds and we're going to close. Thank you very much. Go for it, yeah. Um, you know um, Noah's Ark and how like, God um, controlled the storm? So like, who's controlling all these natural disasters and storms like, right now? I'm so glad that you've asked that question because in my last 60 seconds, I was going to talk about the next three seminars in this stream and Friday's seminar is all about your question. Dr. Andy Bannister will be standing here and he is an expert on that question, how the current crisis in the environment connects to the theology of a good God. So come back on Friday. Thank you very much. Let me just mention what's happening Next, uh, sorry, tomorrow I should say, my friend Sam Griswood will be here speaking about the subject, me and my phone. Sam is 26 years old. He's only become a Christian recently. Sam would say the story of his life has been the story of his phone. It was through his phone that he was approached to be a contestant on the TV show Love Island. It was through his phone that he got a text message from a friend inviting him to an alpha course that resulted in him becoming a Christian. So Sam will be here talking about the thing that we all have in common, the unusual dependence that we now have on a small electronic device that's in our pockets. And so all the mental health issues to do with living on your phone and all the issues that we face in our society, Sam will tell his story, me and my phone. Then the following day, on Thursday, Lauren Windle will be standing here. Lauren is a, uh, recovered, a recovering drug addict, so she was a high-functioning addict. She worked in PR in central London, uh, quite a responsible job, but all this time uh, was a drug addict. And then she met Jesus. She became a Christian. Now uh, Lauren uh, works for the Sun newspaper. She's a journalist. She loves Jesus. And she has a remarkable story to tell. You can search her up 
on YouTube and look at some of her TED Talks, I'd say Lauren is one of the most accomplished public speakers that I've ever heard. So that's Thursday, Lauren Windle. And Friday, finally, Dr. Andy Bannister will be here. Uh, Andy has a PhD in Islamic studies, but his other speciality is the environment, as I just mentioned. Lots of young people today, perhaps people on this campsite, love Jesus, love God, and are also passionate about the environment. So the question is, when I'm saying, hey, I can't go to school if it's underwater, how does that have anything to do with, oh, I love you, Lord, I love you, Jesus, and church and God and all that stuff? Like, how are those two things connected? What's God's plan for the earth? What's the deal with the global warming? Why isn't God doing it? What's God up to? Andy will get into all of that. Okay, I'm now going to come down and stand here at the front. If you do want to chat to me, ask me any questions, you're welcome to do that. I'd love to meet you. Otherwise, we're done. You're free to go. Thank you for coming, and we'll see you next time.